if you were aware that you're being swept along a cultural current and it was taking you towards a crash or an accident, then of course you detach, you know. But that's the point is that you, it's so insidious, you don't think that there's anything wrong. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 66 of the Rotary Wing Show. As I indicated in the last episode, today we are looking at some ideas from the book Extreme Ownership by Jocko Wheelink and Leif Babin, and particularly how they relate to our aviation ops in the helicopter world. To help me go through the book and break down some of the ideas, I've got Adrian Park on the interview today. Adrian, or Parky as I've always known him, has 20 plus years experience flying helicopters both in the military and in the EMS world. We chat in the interview about how I met him and his early career on Hueys and then Blackhawks. Interestingly, if you remember back to the interview where we covered the Brisbane floods, Parkey at the time was a reserve major uh, in the Army, so he was flying Blackhawks for the Army on the floods and then turning around on other days, and his main gig is a pilot for CareFlight, which is a local a rescue helicopter organisation, and then flying on the floods in a civvy machines on uh, consecutive days. One of the reasons I've been waiting to get Parky on for this topic is he's currently completing a PhD in Human Factors. He's been a regular writer for the Flight Safety Australia magazine. Parky also has a podcast called the, the Cancel Sarwatch podcast, which I've plugged before uh, here on the show, and we'll give the details for that again at the end of the interview today. When he's not busy with all that, he holds down his uh, day job as a safety manager for a major helicopter company here in Australia. And all that boils down to the fact that we've got some good help on board with us today. In terms of the book itself, Extreme Ownership, the authors Jocko and Leif are two ex-US Navy SEALs that were deployed to Ramadi in Iraq as a SEAL task force commander and a platoon leader. When they returned back home to the US, they took up positions looking after you know big chunks of the, the SEAL training there in the US. They've since both moved on from the military and the book represents what they've basically put together and come up with is some basic rules of leadership. And the idea of the book, I guess, is to package that up in a way that relates not only to military and to warfighting, but adapts the rules for business and life. And I guess that's the, the marketing pitch on how they sell it. Now, look, there's absolutely no shortage of leadership books out there. So look, why this particular book and why cover it on a helicopter podcast? And I think the answer is pretty basic in that, you know, I'm just a, a big Jocko fan. And as I've been listening to his stuff, you know, he's now I think it's about 130 episodes and the average episode sort of runs over two hours. So over the time, I've racked up a fair bit of time listening to, you know, his messages and many of his stories. And I guess he covers a lot of military history there too. But I find just a lot of stuff around decision-making there resonates with me. And I imagine it will too with a lot of people that listen to the show. And I can sort of see how that adapts to aviation. That's the idea of what we're trying to go through. And he certainly sets a you know, very high bar in, in a whole heap of different areas to uh, try and emulate. Some of the topics in the books are extreme ownership, detachment, 
check your ego, cover and move, or teamwork. Keep it simple, prioritize and execute, decentralized command, situational awareness, sustaining victory, decisiveness amid uncertainty, and the dichotomy of leadership. Unfortunately, we run out of time uh, in the interview today to actually cover everything on that list. Uh, you know, I'd love to, to get your feedback as you listen to it if there's something you want me and Parky to uh, revisit and finish the list off in the future. I guess just keep in mind this is the first time that both of us have actually talked through out loud uh, through the material in terms of how it uh, relates to aviation. And I was finding, even as I was going back through and editing uh, the interview, that I was sort of having more ideas too and sort of getting a bit more of a chance to, to further develop my thoughts around how it all ties in. With all that out of the road, let's get into it. Parky, I've been looking forward to catching up with you. And I guess for people listening, my first intro to you was not actually meeting you. It was through uh, Parky's Huey Tidbits. And this was a, a couple of A4 pages that you'd put together that uh, was passed down when I was on a uh, Huey course that you'd done when you were at, at the uh, the squadron. And I, I couldn't actually find it, but I, I found your Blackhawk study guide. And I've got it here sitting next to me. And it says you're compiled by Captain A.C. Park, uh, School of Army Aviation, <laughs> correct, as at uh, 9th of November. Uh, 2002 so uh yeah that, that was my first intro I, I, you know i didn't know who you were because you'd moved on from the squadron since then and you know people are talking about you know yourself toddy james brown all these sort of names who have been floating around that sort of era just slightly before we got there mm. and then I, I think the next time i ran into you is i think uh, james brown the eoc had organized with you to do some fireside uh, chat sessions for the pilots there and it's kind of one of those yeah. ideas of, of passing on the uh the knowledge learned mm. No, thanks, Mick, for, for having me on the show. And, yeah, the, the Park Huey tidbits have gone through a number of different iterations over the years. And I guess uh, <laughs> that's kind of funny because I, whenever I think of Park Huey tidbits, I always think of those dank kind of officer lines that we used to live in there at the officer's mess and the toilets, and they were always on the back door of the toilets. And oh, there you go. The Kiowa and Blackhawk. Yeah, the Kiowa and Blackhawk. Brethren, I think they were a little bit jealous of them, so they used to deface them at regular times. And some <laughs> might even find a page down, uh, well, in a rather unsavoury spot. But anyway, so, but I have evolved a fair bit since then, and I guess it was just a my, it's sort of my idea of you know you look at all the even back then, you know, twenty twenty five years ago, all the legislation, all the things that you're expected to not only learn but be able to fly on a Monday morning, it was just like massive, and so I was like, oh, how can we how can we simplify this and so, yeah, I just started off with the limits, writing all the limits in one sort of easy-to-find reference. And then I ended up having lots of little, I guess, uh, you know, factoids about the machine. And anyway, they evolved over the years. I actually tried to market them for, uh, it must have been about a year or so ago, because they turned into what I called quick, you know, what were they, professional professional reference cards. That's right. Yep. And so they're about 30 pages long now. And they're pretty much everything I think you need to know as a professional aviator, either military or civilian. And anyway, I run into a few copyright issues, so that's all on hold at the moment. But they are very colourful and they're all interactive now and you can click on the hyperlinks and they jump around and it's uh, all smart device enabled. So they've moved on a bit from those dark days in the uh, officer's mess toilet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the ones I've got here, and again, I guess to try and explain it for you listening is, you know, it's basically an A4 guide with a, a couple of rectangles on the page and some drawings. But it, it was kind of like the, the crib study notes. of rather have to dive in and open all these different textbooks up. You'd sort of sucked out the, uh, the the bits that the testing officers were, were always going to test you on. 
Uh, so, yeah, it was definitely before you had to go up for a dual check or something like that. It was a, a quick flick through, just go, oh, yeah, that's right, and, and touch up on, on a few different things, whether it was navigation aids or you know, how MVGs work or the eye works and things like that. So, yeah, that was very, very useful. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because obviously I've been out of the Army for about 12 years now and a friend of mine was going through COAC, which, as most people would know, is combined off of the arms course. And uh, he goes, oh, you wouldn't believe what they're handing out down here. And it was actually my version of tidbits for uh, COAC. They're still, still going strong after ten years. So anyway, I should have I should definitely have marketed them. But anyway, I'm glad they've helped people. To be honest, it's been uh, yeah, it's been funny where they pop up. And we'll talk a little bit later on about you know you've done a lot of study and, and the writing and things like that. So it's been obviously something you've just done you know as your own study as you've gone through and turned these things out for different people. But I was, I was going to jump into those fireside sessions. I don't remember. It was going to be like a, a whole series of chats with, uh, I think, yourself and, and James Brown, mm. you know, these, these senior aviators for us. Like also, as a junior aviator, you know, anyone who was a year ahead of two of you was a, was uh, someone who had a, had a huge <laughs> amount of experience. Yeah. I think we only ever had one of them. And it was sort of just, you know, the schedule gets busy and it fell over after that. Uh, but, you know, that mm. was something I was kind of looking forward to because you, you sort of get thrown in, you learn how to fly the machine. Uh, but then the decision making goes with it. You know, when you go out as a as a decat and you're and you're flying out there by yourself, you sort of have to, to learn the hard way. And the whole idea, same thing with this podcast, and we'll talk about yours too, is sharing those lessons from other people's decisions and mistakes and what they've learned, rather than have to go through it yourself. Yeah, that was the idea of those fireside chats. And yeah, that was something I was kind of looking forward to, but it uh, it fell over unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I was sad. I was a bit sad about that. It's like a lot of things. You have a lot of good ideas. In fact, I was joking to someone the other day and going, I think I realised I have about. I don't know. I'm a, look, I'm an ideas guy. I have a lot of ideas, but I think one out of 20 is probably, you know, good and sticks. And but it, was, it was a shame. I mean, James had the same idea as me. We were just a bit concerned about the fact that we're becoming more and more technically minded and the machines that we were flying or projected to fly were becoming more and more technical as well and systems focused. But at the heart of that literally is, is the heart of a person, you know, the heart of a pilot, the heart of an officer. And when you think about the the way that we learn our skills our knowledge our attitude a lot of people will concentrate on skills and knowledge but sort of forget about the attitude part and yet that socialization aspect that attitude part you know what we used to call esprit de corps which is literally the spirit of the corpse or the, or the, the spirit of the body seems to have uh, i don't know just been maybe neglected a bit and yet that is the essential part of who we are as aviators or officers or people and so, yeah, we just wanted to sort of talk a bit about that and just be, I guess, a bit reflective and self. And I still remember those, that well, that one in particular, because I think it was the only one we ended up doing. Um, and I still remember as well, you know, looking at all you guys and listening to you. And, and I mean, I'd always learn heaps of things as well. And I thought it was great, you know, even, look, I mean, going through Duntroon and stuff, one of the biggest things I remember going through the Royal Military College was being told over and over again about esprit de corps and about looking after your mates and looking after the diggers, looking after the soldiers and about, you know, all those virtues of courage and initiative and teamwork. And I always really believed in them. I always thought they were so important. And yet, as you get older, they seem to be talked about less and less. And yet, I don't think, well, it's not that I don't think. I know they're not less important. They're more important, if anything. So, yeah. All right, for your career then, leading up to that point, so what did you do to, you know, try and get some of this hard-won knowledge yourself? Well, I began my career after school, I guess. I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Uh, I think it ranged from being a deep-sea diver to being a master chef to being a diesel mechanic to being a policeman. I applied for the police force three times, got knocked back three times. I applied for the Air Force. I probably shouldn't be admitting to that 
uh, really, on on air, but I did, and I, I didn't realise it would actually pass the testing, but they must have thought I was immature or something, so they knocked me back, and I applied again a, a year later, got knocked back again, so I was getting pretty used to rejection, <laughs> and then... Anyway, long story short, I ended up as a lumberjack, as many people would know, and I was cutting down trees up in the snowy mountains there, um, which were, you know, pine trees, of course, so, you know, cutting those down, which was in itself a bit of an experience. And I applied for the Army, and I wasn't even thinking about flying. I kind of I was interested in flying, obviously, because I'd applied for the Air Force, but when I applied for the Army, again, I was just sort of expecting to, to fail, so I was going through all the testing and sort of cracking jokes with the testing officers about being a lumberjack and, <laughs> and they were kind of laughing and carrying on. I thought, no way I'm getting into this this outfit because they must think I'm not taking it seriously. But surprise, surprise, I did get into it. And a few months later, I was at Duntroon, went through Duntroon. I pretty much had all my mates who were going to infantry or arms corps and wasn't even thinking about aviation. And a lot of the guys had their Blackhawk posters up in their rooms and they had the you know, the blue, the blue aviator beret already bashed, ready to go. And when I remember someone saying to me, actually, when they found out I was applying, it's like, you won't last three or four months on course. And I'm like, I'm thinking, actually, they're probably right. What am I doing? But anyway, I applied, got in. And I still remember to this day sitting at Tamworth. And they were, this is how underconfident I was. But I was determined to try hard anyway. But I remember them reading out the duty officer list and I hated being duty officer. I think everybody hates being duty officer. And like I was about three months down the line. So I was like, oh cool, I'll probably be scrubbed by then. So I won't have to worry about being duty officer at least. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but I was determined Yeah. Well I was determined that if I did get scrubbed then it, I'd go I'd go down fighting in a sense. I'd go down, you know, had, knowing that I'd I'd done my best, that I'd actually put in the biggest effort. And if it wasn't good enough, then it wasn't good enough. And you know as well as I do I think with a bit of circumspection and we look back and we realize that there's probably a lot of guys that got scrubbed that shouldn't have you know you'd have your you'd have your rough day have your confidence knocked around and you'd go into a bit of a downward spiral and um i, I still remember in fact i was just reflecting with some people today about being on course at tamworth and getting getting to i think gfpt uh failing gfpt and general flight performance test and going up, passing, barely, and then getting to IF. I was good at IF for some reason, but then getting to the NAP phase, failed the NAP test, then remediation, and got the uh, got the retest done and surprisingly passed. And I still remember the uh, the OC at the time looking down at the list, and I, I could see the list in front of him of where everybody finished, and I was second last. And he looks up at me and goes, Lieutenant Park, you only have just enough potential to continue on this course. And all I heard was continue. And I was like, yeah, yeah, woo-hoo. yeah that's <laughs> I, interesting. I didn't care, you know. No, it was pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah, I think I had two scrub rides on the way through and it was sort of you feel like you're hanging in while you're, your fingernails the whole way through. Well, you know, and then I was, um, you know, just that nervousness and, you know, I'd always get real nervous, in, especially in tests. And then I was staying up really late as well, which is a bit silly. It became counterproductive because I was doing all this study. And actually, that's where the first version of the tidbit started because that, that was CT4 ones, and that's where I wrote them, the very first version. But I was staying up really late and then, you know, getting up early. And as you know, you don't get your sleep, and then all of a sudden your performance starts to go down anyway. So by the time I got to Canberra, where we used to do all our basic helicopter flying, you know, as many, as many people know, I'm a man of faith. And so I was like, I was basically praying, saying, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore, but sort of felt this peace come over me because I just sort of give it up in a sense. And then 
again, I don't say this to say, hey, look at what a great pilot I am, but I ducked that course in Canberra and I still really don't know how I did that because, you know, in Tamworth I nearly failed. So I went from being second last to being first and from then on it really helped me as an instructor as well later on in life because I knew what it was. I, I could feel what a student was feeling when they were a struggler and I could always uh, or, or also feel what a, a student would be feeling when they were, you know, ducks in the course, when they were just the jet kind of legend. And so I was able to, you know, empathise with both in a sense, which I think helped me. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, a, that's my flying career in a nutshell. But then I also intermingled that with a whole bunch of church work and youth work. I was interested in just trying to share what I've learned from the Army with, with youth, so I did that for a couple of years. I flew for SeaWorld for a couple of years to try and pay some bills when I was doing the youth work, so our girls were really pleased to go to uh, go to SeaWorld quite regularly. In fact, it got to the point where they were sick of going to SeaWorld. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, I'm not SeaWorld again, but I really yeah, enjoyed yeah. that. My dad's around. got a, uh, a unit across the water there from SeaWorld, so when I go down and visit him, you know, see those guys go around, I know a couple of the pots there, but you, geez, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, you, you, you crack up your uh, you rack up your circuits doing that job. So basically it's a, a theme oh. park on the Gold Coast uh, for overseas listeners and there's, yeah, there's a, a you know, well, this, this stage is a squirrel there. I'm not sure what well, well, you're flying out of there, but it's just it's just back to back yeah, all the- day short circuits. Oh yeah, look, Mick, you get really good at hovering. Let me tell you. <laughs> and you—it was funny because, as you know, as people who've been there would know, when you come in and land, there's a big glass wall at one back end of the hangar, so that all the people at SeaWorld can look through and watch you land. So you'd be coming in there sometimes with 25 knot sea breeze that's picked up, you know, full crosswind kind of thing, and you've got to land the thing on a tiny little uh, trolley. And say all these faces are kind of looking at you through the window as you're trying to put this thing down, and that was always pretty interesting, but. Uh, what was good though, you had the little, you know, the six stack of CD going with, I don't know, U2 playing or whatever and air conditioning and cruise up and down the coast. It was kind of cool. So did that. And then I started um, flying for Care Flight Queensland and I, I, I sort of I came and went a little bit, but I probably was with them probably seven or eight years all up, I guess, and did a variety of roles ranging from, you know, rescue pilot to uh, base base manager helped set up the, the 24-7 operation up here in Toowoomba, uh, which was really good with the 412 and the Bell 230, which was definitely not a beginner's machine, I can tell you, and the Squirrel as well. We were still flying that and really enjoyed working with medical staff, working with people. Um, you know, in the, in the military, you do a lot of stuff, which is really good, and, you know, got to go to Bougainville and Timor and fly a variety of aircraft, got to fly the U.S. Army for a couple of years, but it was never as satisfying as just flying around for your local community and just, you know, even just helping people that were quite sick, taking them from one hospital to another and then doing the rescue work on the side of mountains or out over the ocean. It was always real. I really enjoyed that. Got a lot out of that and still has a fond place in my heart. So that was sort of, I guess, my career in a kind of scattershot kind of way. So I've experienced a lot of different flying cultures and a lot of different safety cultures. Yeah, I've seen strengths and weaknesses in, I guess, all of them, and you know, ranging from the U.S. Army to, to uh, you know, Care Flight to the to the Australian Army. That's what I'm kind of looking forward to today to talk through some of that stuff with you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the book we'll go through it's uh, it's called Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko Willink. We've both basically read through it and come up with some notes before, before we crack into that. Opaki, the, the Bell uh, 230. I know nothing about it. So just that you, you throw away comment there that it's not a, a beginner's machine. What's the what's the sort of background there? What's uh, what's different with it? So the Bell 230 is a triple two series, which if anyone's seen Airwolf, 
than Absolutely. that. that my, uh, I think it was grade, grade four, grade five at, uh, at primary school. That was my uh, <laughs> ultimate. Yeah, <laughs> seeing that thing flying around. Well, <laughs> well, it's mine too. In fact, my brother loved uh, Airwolf, so of course we made the two thirty. Came and had a look at it and loved it. But we didn't have uh, all that Gucci gear that Stringfellow Hawk had, um, but. Uh, and it was it was skidded, so it didn't have the undercarriage. But it, the the two thirty was basically an upgrade to the triple two, so it had better engines, and ours had sort of semi glass cockpit, you know, EFIS and all that. Um, but the reason I say it wasn't a beginner's move is actually a guy that some people know, Butch Miller, turned or coined that phrase because it wasn't uh, it didn't have the best power margins, the visibility wasn't real good, and we sort of had the corporate doors on there, so we couldn't get the sliding door back and have the crew look out so when you when you were flying into a pad say to do a primary out in, a, in an unknown landing site you really couldn't see much not much power not much potential to go around it was a good cheap platform and an, and an ifr platform so um it was good in that way but yeah like i said to to get in and out of pads and uh, very very challenging at times and probably more than i don't think it'd just be me that had a few kind of exciting tales to tell about you know certain things that happened with that machine and anyway it, it did the job i guess over time although it did it did end up being a little bit expensive a bit more expensive to run than what everyone thought as well so yeah interesting machine to fly and when we got the 412 it was like oh yeah cool 412 even though it was slower because the 230 was quite fast uh, but it was just, you know, as you know, 412 just a Huey on steroids, really. So the visibility is really good. The machine was easy to operate in and out of pads. It was easy to start as well. That was the other thing, the 230. It had the Allisons in there, and so modulated start. And the collective was set up in a different way to most helicopters I'd flown in that the throttles, rather than being twist grip, aligned with the collective head themselves. They were off at a 90-degree angle, All right. a bit like a motorbike, a bit like a motorbike throttle. And so the number one engine was on the left-hand side, obviously, and the number two was the inside throttle. But what would happen, because you had to modulate the start, which means you essentially control the acceleration of the engine as you're introducing fuel. But those throttles, they weren't a nice sort of smooth rotational movement. They were more kind of clunky. So those Alphans, that you know, are pretty sensitive at the best of times. If you just landed somewhere and doing a quick turnaround, trying to take off again, yeah, they'll be advancing, say, for example, number one, if you're starting the number one on that day and, you know, you get light off and then you give it a bit more fuel. And if, especially when you hadn't flown it for a while, you invariably give it too much. And, you know, the ITT inlet turbine temperature just start to spike and then you back it off. And then sometimes you'd flame out the engine and, oh, no. and you know, people were watching. It's like, oh, man, this is really embarrassing. You almost, then the old heart rate would go up. You almost need therapy every time you started it. <laughs> All right. Well, that makes it yeah difficult then. Uh, before we leave that, outside the uh, the Huey community, not many people are going to know much about uh, Bougainville. So we haven't touched on it at all uh, in the episodes uh, for this show yet. Maybe I'll try and get Toddy Evans or someone on to, to talk more about it. But yeah. can you yeah quickly talk about you know where Bougainville is and, and the operations you were doing there and some of the challenges? Yeah. Well, so Bougainville is sort of like the northwestern geographically the northwestern part of the solomon islands but politically it was always aligned with Papua new guinea but even ethnically it was quite different like the in fact the the bougainvillians would in that time quite pejoratively call the png mainland as redskins because they're um the um bougainvillians that were a a lot uh, a lot darker in color and stuff so 
anyway, there's always sort of a bit of tension, and obviously Papua New Guinea uh, put a big mine there with the help of the Australians, Panguna Copper Mine, and people can Google it later, but basically hostilities broke out. Actually, I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm looking up at the very famous uh, Lola Ho beat-up picture that I think Cameron Stevenson was one of the guys put together by Barry Spicer. But So we, we ended up going over there and taking over from the New Zealand, and in fact, it's actually 20 years this year, so it was uh, Anzac Day 1998 when we first started flying officially. And it was the first time the UEs had deployed overseas on operations since Vietnam. And so I was a troop commander, so it was all, you know, eyes eyes wide open kind of thing. And we went over there to basically act as the peace monitoring group. And from then on, from about 1998 until August, I think, 2001, so you know, three, three and a bit years, we... We, we flew, so, I mean, thousands of hours, heaps and heaps of jobs and really quite challenging conditions. And when we look back on I mean, we're all in our earlier mid-20s um, flying these machines, sometimes, you know, fully laden with people or supplies. If we didn't fly, then people didn't get their supplies or, you know, if, if, if we couldn't fly, then they, they didn't have the aeromedical evacuation that they needed. I've got a baby named after me, Mick, believe it or not. Not mine, not mine. I must be very quick to point out. Uh, but no, we went and picked up a, a local lady. She was, uh, she was three. I think she'd been in labour for three days, and uh, she would have died, and the baby would have died. But we went and picked them up, and uh, you know, pretty simple job for us, really, but life changing for them and the, the medical staff, army medical staff over there, managed to deliver the baby, and uh, found out that she decided to name it after the pilot that came and rescued her. So, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, true. so yeah, it was a great time. I've heard it called like you know Jurassic Park. You know, as soon as when you're flying around, you get the the sort of tropical yeah. beaches straight into your jungles and up and these huge volcanoes and things. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing. It was we used to call it yeah Jurassic Park or the Lost World. Essentially, if you look at it, it's only probably about a hundred k's or maybe a bit more long and sort of orientated northwest to southeast, but. In the space of about oh, five thousand meters, or five, you know, five to six k's from the beach, it, the land rises up to nine thousand feet uh, at its highest peak. You know, Kosciuszko, I think, is what seven thousand three hundred feet or whatever it is. So this this island goes from zero feet at sea level straight up to nine thousand. One of the big volcanoes, which is was inactive, and then there was another volcano, just almost that kind of stereotypical artistic volcano. You know, the real conical one. And, you know, well, I won't say for sure, but certain people were known to put their skin on the upwind side and that kind of thing. But then there are these massive valleys, uh, crevices and canyons, and I swear that if dinosaurs still existed, that's where they'd be because you'd fly over these canyons and look down this real thick jungle and just barely any light getting down in there. And then there was this massive sinkhole where... What had happened was they have these lava tubes that come down, and over time, obviously, the lava's gone, but they've hollowed out the ground, and then part of this massive underground tunnel has collapsed in on itself and created this big sinkhole, essentially, with a waterfall at one end. And so you could you could have fitted a 747 up there if you wanted to, and we'd been warned off flying down or hovering around there because the Royal New Zealand Air Force had uh, sent one Huey down and then up into the tunnel, so when I say tunnel, it's not really a tunnel. It's like imagine a great big aircraft hangar. So they, so their Huey's flown up in there, turned around with all its landing lights on. Another Huey's come down and they've taken a photo of it. And that's then become their uh, sort of back then, you know, Windows 98 screensaver. Nice. 
us. And uh, unfortunately, the chief of the Air Force came over and saw it, and next thing, uh, names were being taken down to be charged, and we were all told never, ever fly in there. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure to this day, Mick, whether that was obeyed or not. There may have been one or two people okay. that went down in there that, well, that's what I was going to ask because I, I hadn't heard that part where they flew in, but I thought there was some kind of war story out there. And again, I thought it was, I was pretty sure it was the Kiwi guys, uh, where, and I thought they'd flown into it and then couldn't uh, couldn't get out of it. But uh, yeah, I wasn't sure. Of that. Oh well, yeah. No, they they were fine. There was, there was two stories. So the original story was National Geographic with a Hughes five hundred back in the mid eighties. They because it was massive, and then so they actually flew their Hughes five hundred. And I've, I've tried Googling. I've never been able to find it. Maybe someone can find it and can let us know. But they it would have been about the mid-'80s, and they went up with National Geographic, and they flew the Hughes 500 in, up into this lava tube and reportedly went like about a kilometre and uh, took photos and so forth with all their searchlights on, landing lights on and whatnot, then turned around and, and hovered back out. But as they were hovering back out, that waterfall I was telling you about, well, not that waterfall, you know, it's just probably a, a stream of water, but the stream of water went through the tail rotor uh, and apparently knocked it out of balance. And so they've sort of limped up out of there and then managed to land on the beach about a kilometre away with a damaged tail rotor. So that's the story I heard, and I heard it from a fairly reputable source, but I've never been able to find photos or any National Geographic article. I don't know, maybe they got in trouble, like the Royal New Zealand Air Force got in trouble, who knows? <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, yeah, let's talk about this book that we've uh, read through. And, and as an introduction, I guess, yeah. uh, Jocko Willink, he's an ex-Navy SEAL who runs a, another podcast called the uh, the Jocko Podcast. And, you know, some of these things go mm. for like two or three hours, like the Mammoth Podcast. But if you've got any kind oh, of yeah. military history background, uh, you know, and, and for leadership and things like that, they, they're just awesome. I, I think it ranks pretty highly in the business section of iTunes. And, yeah, yeah lo- lots of stuff to, to take out of it. Uh, and I guess we've, I've just pulled out the, the major uh, topic headlines from from the book Extreme Ownership. And Bucky, I guess the idea is what we're trying to do for folks is, is go through and just little snippets of it, but then try and relate it back to aviation examples and how we can kind of use some of this sort of stuff to hopefully be better operators as we go about our, our daily aviation. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. And it really ties in there, Mick, what we were talking about before with, you know, the, the spirit of the core, the spirit of something. I mean, all these sections that you sent me and really recommend it to the listeners as well to have a, have a read of this book but you know from the extreme ownership type stuff all the way through to leadership and check your ego and all that kind of stuff we're going to talk about that that's what i was talking about before we're just not saying we are very technically minded and very knowledge minded but really thinking about our attitudes and the, the, the spirit of the core the spirit of what's going on not just the the pushing and pulling of controls or the, or the programming of an FMS, you know. So, yeah, I, I, thanks for putting me on because I, I didn't even know about it until you put me onto it. So thanks for that. No dramas. All right, well, let's just yeah, punch through them and, and uh, hit them as we go. So his, his big idea is extreme ownership. It's obviously the, the name of the book. Uh, and the idea that mm-hmm. there is if if something happens in your life, whether you're you know at fault or not, and, and again, talking about the aviation, you know, whether it's, it's weather or something goes wrong with the aircraft, uh, but if you've got that mindset of you're a victim of circumstance, then you basically can't do anything to fix the problem. So he's just saying, you know, regardless of whatever it is, you should basically be stepping up and accepting responsibility or accepting, you know, over the top in terms of extreme ownership because by uh, taking responsibility and, and owning the issue, then you can actually take some steps to to solve that um, and, mm. and, and basically work on that way. So the couple of notes I've got here for aviation is, 
uh, you know, again, accepting feedback uh, and being sort of open to that, you know, not blaming, you know, it's, you talk about the, uh, the tradesman always blames his tools. And uh, again, yeah. I see that in aviation. So, you know, not blaming people, the weather or the aircraft, because uh, generally if you look, and I guess it's like accident investigation, if you look back far enough down the chain, there was some sort of human person, you know, bad decision or, or error. Uh, and basically it's putting your hand up, admitting to or owning mistake and, and then identifying what you do different next time uh, as opposed to blowing yeah. off and saying, okay, you know, that's, that's someone else's problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this first one really resonated with me, the extreme ownership, because I think it is it is very relevant to aircraft because you'd know as well instructing that uh, for me, the in the the student or the trainee that to me was the most concerning was not the one who was struggling to push and pull those controls in the right way or get the attitude right or get the altitude right or within the prescribed parameters, but the one that was always sort of blaming or making excuses. And, you know, I think as instructors, we all have to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves because, you know, in the military, they coined that QFI mafia phrase for a reason. And that was probably because some QFIs become arrogant and, you know, and, and weren't being humble themselves. But I think that kind of trainee or that attitude that's like, oh, no, it's someone else's fault. It's not my fault. You know, you should have given me more time. You should have done this or that. Uh, that really resonated with me. And what really, I think, resonated with me from Jocko was the idea that it doesn't matter whether you think you, in your organisation, whichever organisation it might be, whether you think one of your employees or one of your troops or you know one of your team is letting the team down, it always comes back to you. And I was, at first I was like, oh, hang on a minute. But then I realised what he's talking about, something that we've always accepted really as you know, what we would call captain's responsibility. The captain of the aircraft always takes responsibility. That doesn't mean it's even his fault if, say, for example, your co-pilot does something suddenly drastically wrong and you just don't have time to, to capture it or whatever. But what it does mean is that captain's responsibility says, you know what, it was my aircraft, I need to do something about this. I accept responsibility for what's happened. I accept responsibility for trying to fix it. That's a pretty powerful statement and also a pretty lofty ideal. But I really, I really like, because obviously Jocko's a, a Navy SEAL, um, I really like the way that that so easily applies to, to aviation. But, yeah, I don't know. Is that what you found as well, mate? Obviously doing a fair bit of instructing now. Yeah, because – and I, I know I'm guilty of myself, you know, whether as a student or otherwise, because as soon as you make that thing an external thing, then often you're not extracting the learning value from it because if, again, if you you know, oh, you know it was bad weather or or you know the, the other person didn't do their mission planning properly or or whatever it is, as soon as it, yeah. as soon as it's someone else's um, error or, or input, then you can't basically learn from it for the next time. And mm. you know the, the the most extreme example I think is recently has been a couple of those U.S. warships have hit another ship while the you know the captain's been asleep or something like that. And you know the idea that the, the captain of the ship is, is responsible even if he's asleep for uh, you know for that whole ship hitting something else. And, and the same thing as you know as an owner of a company or the aircraft captain, you know it's it, there's a, it could be something you could do beforehand leading up in terms of training or something like that that. Uh, you could either change for next time, um, but you have to wear that responsibility. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's interesting today, isn't it? Because if you think about all the people that we're called to honour in society, for example, politicians, 
even military leaders and so forth, there seems to be more and more, I think, a temptation for them to try to not necessarily shirk responsibility, but sort of be seen to be accountable, but not really accountable and to always have an out. And again, this, this, again, this really spoke to me because I think about our aviation situation and, and oftentimes there seems to be when something's going wrong, I think there's, I always think there's cultural gravity, you know, gravity pulls you in a certain direction. Unless you pour in energy, it will take you that direction. And the, the direction is immediately to blame one another or to try and seek out some someone to, to, to take, you know, responsibility for something maybe we should take. And I've always found it, I guess I've always found it interesting. I don't know, I've always, I even watch politicians on TV sometimes. I just go, you know what, why don't you just say, I got it wrong. I'm sorry, and I'll try and do better. <laughs> like, yes. you know, because we ask our kids to do that, don't we? Like, if our kid comes to us and goes, "Well, no, it was my sister. It was my sister," you know, we always say, "No, no, no. You need to take responsibility yourself." And it's like that's just a basic lesson that we learn, and yet then it's kind of lost. And in the aircraft, it's even more, even more important because the consequences are real and immediate. You know, if we, we can we can bluff and bluster, but the laws of physics are the laws of physics. They don't care about our pride or our hurt ego or whatever they the laws of physics will do what the laws of physics do so you know we want to be we want to be really pragmatic about that so there's two more points that i've got here to kind of pull out of that is is one you know if you're i guess would take from the manager's point of view or the you know the owner of the business or the you know the, the flight commander if you've got one of your people who are working for you comes to you and says hey look i've stuffed this up and, you know, this this is what happened, this is what I did, and this is what I'll do next time so it doesn't happen again or, or to fix the problem. You kind of then reassured, like you're going, okay, he's recognised, you know, something's gone wrong, he's, he's telling me, uh, so I'm not, you know, finding out from another way, and they've taken ownership and they're going to tell me what they're going to do differently. That's a completely different situation to finding out that someone's stuffed something up and has tried to sweep it under the, yeah. under the carpet. Uh, and, you know, you have two very different sort of judgments. On, on that person, but also yeah. for, for the organisation, they're two very different outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we've all got stories as well in our own experience where, again, cultural gravity or that there's something in us that when we're confronted with something, it, it is hard to fess up. Like, for example, if you have a chip light or something like that in the machine or something technical going wrong, it's so easy to write a report, so easy to write a report and go, yeah, I had a chip light, did this, did that. But if you say, okay, let me fess up to me. Yeah. Well, 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 yeah, well, let me, let me, I was sharing this story. I probably shouldn't share this. I'll probably never get a job in the industry after I share this. But anyway, <laughs> I, you know, in the early days flying a squirrel, we, we stopped and landed. We'd been going all day. And it was in the early days before we got the 412 and we're doing medical tasking. We got a, another job to go and pick up a motorbike rider down Warwick. So this is out of Toowoomba. And I always get out of the aircraft. I always walk around. I always have a look. But on this day, for some reason, the third day of the flight, I had a crewman that I trusted. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my map and I'm thinking, he, he started the refuel, but it can current activity or shut down. And I'm going, all right, I'll, uh, I'll have a quick little map. Yep, know where I'm going. It was before we had EFBs and Oz runway. So I actually had to work for a living to try and find where we we're going. And I decided that I wouldn't get out and walk around. So I didn't get out and walk around and... I said to the crewy who remained nameless, I said, uh, are we all good to go? Have you checked the fuel? Yep, yep, all good. So he jumped in. We flew down to Warwick. And this is an example of when 
I knew that I was both a really good pilot and a really bad pilot at the same time <laughs> because I was a really good pilot. Uh, well, actually, I'll tell you why I was a really bad pilot. First. So we landed and crew we jumped out and, you know, getting ready to get the patient in. He, and he, then he comes back around the front just as the machine and the engine's winding down. He's got this real sheepish look on his face and he's shaking his head and he holds his hand up and in his hand's a fuel cap. <laughs> so he'd left the fuel cap off and in the screw, as people know, uh, in that particular machine, it's got indented steps above the rear skid. So a lot of times people handily just put the fuel cap in there and it actually had this big set of keys on there as well because it was a lockable fuel cap. So I'd flown all the way to Warwick about 30 minutes or so, perfectly in balance, so showing that I'm a good pilot, but <laughs> didn't check that the fuel cap was on, showing that I'm a really bad oh, pilot, yeah. you know what I mean? And and so when it came time to go, okay, I need to write this up, I'm like, oh, but this is, look, I'm relatively new to the company, I'm going to look like an idiot, maybe. And th- that's the first thought, that's the temptation, that's the cultural gravity is, oh, maybe I can just keep it hidden, you know. And I know because the crewman's not going to talk about it because he left it off as well. But, you know, we ended up writing it up and, and, and in the end we didn't get in that much trouble even back then. That was probably 15, no, what was them, 12 years ago, I guess. But like I said, really hard, really hard to fess up and go, yep, I just did something wrong. Really, and not just wrong, but kind of dumb, you know. Um, so anyway, yeah. And the, the other last point there is if uh, it comes back to, and again, the pressure from someone else trying to get you going on a flight where you know it's a bad idea, uh, and I guess there's, there's no shortage of crash investigations where, you know, the, the person's been really, really arming and arming about whether to go or not, and then they've sort of had that pressure to go, and then something's happened. So, mm. you know, if someone tells you to do something you know is a bad idea, but you still go and do it, and it turns out bad, then you're still responsible for that outcome because you, you know, you could have said no. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't necessarily yeah. push that back on the on the person who tried to to push you to do it. Yeah. And in EMS, as most EMS pilots will know, it is real. It's hero to zero so quickly. You could push in really bad weather and do some pretty silly things, come home safely, i.e. make it home with the the rescuee uh, and be a hero. But at the same time, you go out, really push it, crash. You you are you know you're the biggest loser. Literally, you are you know unprofessional, et cetera, et cetera. One in one scenario, you get a medal. In another scenario, you get berated if you if you're still alive. So there's a lot of that kind of pressure to go. We talk a lot about that in my current job as well, just with those kinds of pressures. And then what I call, you know, decisional inertia. Once you've made the decision to go, how hard it is to turn around. You see that with the big jets too, with the articles that I research and write for Flight Safety Australia. Over and over again, you see them on final in a really untidy, ugly approach. And all they have to do is push those throttles forward and go around and yet they'll be embarrassed and they'll burn more fuel and they'll probably get a little bit of you know, narkiness from their company, but they won't die, and yet they just keep pushing. Uh, really powerful mental cognitive bias that makes us keep going. And, again, that's a matter of pulling back from that and hopefully even having a good, strong crewman or even a medic or someone in the back, even a student going, you know, what are we doing here? Do we, do we really need to be doing this? You know, And, unfortunately, many times people don't have that courage to speak up. Which leads really good into that next one because you just mentioned, you know, having like a student in the back or even a uh... – as a testing officer or a check captain or, or someone, because uh, the next point is about uh, detachment and being able to, to detach and, and step back from the situation and sort of look at it with uh, with fresh eyes. And, and I guess I'll, I'll come mm. back to that that aviation one. But the example Jocko often uses is uh, you know they were assaulting an oil rig, 
and uh, they're all busy yeah. going up to Oregon. He basically had a, he just had a moment where he, he stood back, uh, and he basically they talk about it with their leaders as they you know port arms. So he basically pulls the you know the rifle up, and so he's not sort of siding over it. Uh, step back, and by doing that, he could sort of step back and and then actually see what was going on, rather than trying to look over the the scope of the rifle and 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 do the assault. Uh, so he's talking about the importance mm-hmm. of leaders to be have that ability to sort of step back and actually see what's going on. And, and you know, mm-hmm. like as an instructor, when you're sitting there watching the student working hard, again they're loaded up and they're in that moment, but you've got that ability to sort of be back and detached slightly, and you can see everything that's going on. And I guess it's the same if you're in a jump seat. You've got that extra detachment from the people who are, are on the controls. Yeah, I think it was a really, again, a powerful insight. And I think, I think what this does is pierce our cultural short-sightedness, our cultural myopia. And by that, I mean we have within us um, the capacity to do you know extraordinary things, but we are more driven by peer. Um, expectations of peer pressure, cultural expectations, you know, what is culture, accepted behaviours and norms. It's it's the way we do things around here and that idea of being able to step back from that. I mean, culture makes you do some pretty dumb things. I often use the example of, uh, or I try to coin the phrase of, you know, culture is conscience because what tends to happen is those cultural norms essentially become your conscience and your conscience can become a little bit distorted, a bit like a ray of light going through a prism, you know, it gets bent, you know, we like to think a ray of light is nice and straight. We like to think our conscience is nice and straight, but it can really be distorted, refracted in a sense by our culture. And we've all been in different types of cultures. And, and I know myself, when I left the army, you have this sense where you kind of start to grow your hair long. If you're me, I hated shaving. So you don't shave for about three weeks. Some people get a tat, some people get an earring. And in a flying sense, you actually start to let your hair grow long too you kind of you don't you know people aren't scrutinizing you as closely in the military so but it's funny because some of the safety barriers or safety buffers that you have in the military like the authorization process like you know really high standards of maintenance and all that you don't have those in civvy street in many cases not the same not to the same level i'm not saying civvy streets are unsafe but you know those safety buffers are a lot thicker in the army and then all of a sudden you now got that more relaxed attitude and and you sort of start to accept over time more and more, you know, in, in that sense of practical drift, more and more kind of riskier operations, particularly in the EMS world. And you really at times do have to detach and, and, and you can't. And it's like, it's because the thing is, if you, and this is probably the, the discussion point as well, is if you, if you were aware that you're being swept along a cultural current and it was taking you towards a crash or an accident, then of course you detach, you know. But that's the point: is that you, it's so insidious. You don't think that there's anything wrong, and so you keep going along with it. And so I've thought about this one a lot. And I, one of the really good things I heard in my career was, especially in the EMS world, the emergency services world, is look for and rationalise and justify and verbalise to your crew, especially when it's a bit dicey, reasons not to go. So because. In the EMS world, you, you always have within you that human virtue, which is to go and help people. And so everything within you is saying, go, go, go. But when you start to actually rationalise, verbalise uh, reasons not to go, um, you start to be able to, de- to detach a little bit. And that's, I'm not saying, hey, we're not going to go and help someone. But what that does is it brings symmetry to your thinking. I've seen really experienced guys, I mean really experienced guys, who will talk to the cows come home about, oh, we won't emote and we'll remain professional, detached, and we'll keep the emotions out and often say, you know, 
you can try and keep the emotions out of it, but it's like trying to tell someone to keep the oxygen out of breathing. You know, we're emotional beings. It's far better to be aware of your emotions and be able to talk about those, make sure they're properly constrained and targeted in the right area. But, you know, I've seen guys that, that will talk to the cows coming home, like I said, about, yeah, we're not going to go out tonight and there's, I've got every reason in the book not to go out and then the phone rings and boom, they're going out in marginal weather. Yeah. And I've said to them, you know, and I've said it to myself as many times, like, think through very carefully, look, if it was your family member on board this machine, should you be going? You know, like, wouldn't it be better that they maybe go in an ambulance rather than a than a helicopter tonight? So, yeah, that detaching, you know, yeah, you got me thinking there because I guess I'd say to you, I mean, what do you think, Mick? Like, how, how do you detach? Because it's, it's, it's easy to say, but how do you do it, especially when you're under pressure? I, I can't remember if he says anything in the book about the practical side of that. Yeah, well, there's um, a couple of things. But, it's one I've got one that sort of works for us. So I guess back to the book is, is often he looks at it in a, in a physical thing. Like it's obviously it's a mental yeah. a, a mental detachment you're doing, but you can sometimes achieve that. And I guess we'll come back to aviation, but you can do that in a physical oh, yeah. aspect by, you know, if you're a team leader or, you know, and again, we're talking firefights and stuff, if you just step back even two or three metres from the line, you suddenly have, you know, a different viewpoint from it there. I guess back to aviation where I think what's going to, what I can pull out of this to, to help me, and the same thing, you know, I'm, mm. I'm probably really dangerous because, you know, I want to I wanna please, the job comes in, you want to get the job done and you're looking for all those ways you, you can get the job done. As you said, you know, rather than looking for, mm. for a reason not to go, you're kind of looking at, oh, you know, if we if we went this way around the hill, maybe it'd be better weather. And so you're looking at all the ways you can get it to do. But I, I think the, come up, the thing I've come up with there to help me is to take the long-term view. So yeah. rather than thinking about this flight, it's kind of, okay, well, Five years down the track, and if I think you have know, a career, all those sorts of things, is it you know do I need to do this flight, and, and how's it going to look over the long term? So five years down the track, you know, would I have been happy going on this flight? So I think for me, looking at just over a slightly longer time frame might help um, just detach from that yeah. immediate pressure. Yeah, I like that. I've often thought through that as well. I often say to the team. You know, near horizon versus far horizon. If you think about it in the near horizon, it'd be like a soccer game or Aussie rules game. I always remember my coach, you know, back in the days of Kajiwa Football Club, which I love playing Aussie rules. Straight after you've made a mistake or straight after the other team got a goal, you'd look around the team and everyone had their head down. And it's funny because if you think about the physicality of having your head down, all you can see is your feet and the ground right in front of you. And our coach would be like, get your heads up, get your heads up. Like, as soon as you get your head up, Again, think of the physicality of that. You can see the horizon and, and you can still see around near your feet as well, but it's a completely different perspective. And when and just what you, I like what you're saying there, because when you look to the horizon, the far horizon in a sense, that's when you start to get perspective. Whereas if you're just looking at your feet, you can't see the far horizon. But if you look to the far horizon, you actually can see close to you as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a good way um, that's a good way of thinking through it because there's a power again. It's one of those. It's cultural gravity. Gravity will pull you towards looking to the near horizon and getting caught up in the moment. And you know you, that's the old saying: Will it matter in five minutes? Will it matter in five hours? Will it matter in five days? Five years? You know, oftentimes it just won't even matter in five minutes. You know, <laughs> that's it. All right. Did you have anything else for that one? We'll, we'll, we'll hit the next point. Um, no, I think we covered that pretty well, actually. The um. Yeah, actually, I wasn't even looking at it when I was talking, so I'm glad we <laughs> talked about EMS operation, weather decision, <laughs> and risk versus reward. So, no, that's good. And 
All right. Well, our next one's awesome for aviation because it's uh, it's check your ego, and I think it's it just attracts a certain personality uh, for aviation because it's sort of that still that sense of adventure and and frontier, and uh, it, you know, <laughs> there's no shortage of egos kicking around in aviation. So I guess his, <laughs> his idea is that, that isn't safe. Yeah, I know. So uh, that pressure to you know prove your to to prove your, your skills and and that you can you know you tough it out and you, and you can push on and uh, you know looking at unnecessary risks and you know putting other people down for their mistakes, not seeking input and accepting not accepting feedback and constructive criticism. So I think if you if you just list off those things, uh, I'd be really surprised if if most people who have been in aviation for a while can't think of someone who immediately jumps to mind with with some of those points. <laughs> That's uh, not me. Is it? <laughs> no. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, so yeah, I guess it's just there. It's, it's <laughs> you know ego. Well, you're not denying it. Well, look. <laughs> It's all about keeping in check. You've got to have some kind of ego, and that's what pushes you to do the study and try hard. Yeah. Uh, but his point there is, no, that, you know, it's obviously got to be. In still going, I'm still going to ring my therapist. <laughs> well, people can send in uh, some stories, and we'll uh, voucher. <laughs> no, I, I agree, mate. In all seriousness, like the ego, it's funny because I'm looking at, you know, the, like you said, strength and weakness. Like you actually need self confidence, but again, it's probably all about proportionate self-confidence and when it becomes disproportionate and asymmetrical that's when you have an issue um, and I, I really, I've always believed that and I don't know what you think about this idea but I've always believed that your strength is your weakness so for example someone might be really assertive and a great leader and you know really stretching of other people and people respect that person and that person you know she might be you know really care about people as well but it's really easy when that sense of leadership becomes disproportionate to turn into intimidation or bullying or anything like that you know and then same token other people that might be a bit more of an introvert that they're the ones that are seen as you know strong and resilient and quiet and the person you can rely on but they're also the ones that's their strength they're also the ones where they should be speaking up and they're not speaking up because they don't want to have conflict and so now strength has become weakness and it's the same with ego that's what i kind of think i think Jocko talks a little bit about that as well, but um, but man, I reckon I reckon you know if you could if you could actually have the ATSB or the NTSB investigate these things and you know put down causal factors as ego and be able to quantify that in some way, I reckon you'd have a very high proportion of accidents <laughs> that have been caused by ego. Yeah, and just playing a bit straight for his notes, you know, he's talking about complacency. So if if you have that too high uh, an ego or appreciation of your own skills. Then you know you, you get complacent because you're sort of pitching your ability higher than possibly what it is, um, and, and there's going to be situations yeah. where you just have to you know suck up the hit to your ego in, in terms to to get the the mission done or to you know get the resource that you're after or something like that. And, and again, you know, as you mm. add more and more people to a crew, like it's very different going from a, a single pilot operation into something where you got two pilots and, and crew in the back. Um, you know, sometimes mm. you really have to, and I guess. Like uh, times I've thought about it maybe is as a as a junior aircraft captain with fairly senior other crew members, like mm. often you'll say I oh, make a decision and they very gently <clears throat> give you some feedback and, and suggest oh well, have you thought about maybe we should go left instead of right, and there's times yeah. there where you kind of feel attached to your decision because well, you know I've got, I've got to try and make a decision, whereas if you weren't so 
worried about your ego, yeah. um, then you, you may be more open to that sort of feedback and incorporate that into your plans. Mm. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think, I always think, because it's so easy to go, oh, I know this person's got a big ego, but I know at times we, we will all be tempted in different ways and it'll manifest itself in different ways to be perhaps, like I said, asymmetrical in our self-confidence and become even subtly egotistical. And I know Tony Kern talks about this with the square of mediocrity. You know, when you're an instructor for a long time, you're not as examined as other people and you, even your skills can actually begin to degrade, but you you have ways of covering it. So he talks about how he used to do the cloverleaf pattern uh, as an example, you know, aerobatics, and he'd demonstrate the first half of it, but he knew he couldn't do the second half. He was really crap at it. So he'd always yeah. hand over halfway through. To his... <laughs> and he says, that's what happens. You end up in the square of mediocrity. But I can give you two contrasting stories, actually. One was when I was very early co-pilot. Uh, so straight off course, up to on K95, flying around on a big adventure with my aircraft captain. He shall remain nameless, but he, he was British and a great guy. I love him still, you know, and, it was interesting with him because he had come from a different flying culture again. He'd been a, a Royal Marine and what can I call him? I'll call him Bob. So Bob was uh, you know, awesome pilot, really one of those real gregarious guys, just naturally everybody loved him. And so I was I was I was flying with him and and I'm sure he won't mind me sharing this, but I'll keep his name a secret just in case. So we're flying around having all these adventures and we had all our Hueys spread out across the top end of Australia doing uh, medevac essentially and we were in a place called Groot Island and uh, we, he wanted, because he'd been in the UK, so he loved flying, he loved flying low and we were flying really, really low and I was starting to get uncomfortable because I could swear now and again I could see the rotor tip vortices kicking up sand from the sand dunes that we were flying in between and I'm thinking, because that was the early days of human factors, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, I know, I know I'm supposed to speak up now and, but look, I really like this guy and earlier on in the flight he lit up a ciggy, you know, and uh, both me and the the loadmaster had gone, oh, you know, we're not supposed to uh, smoke in army aircraft. He goes, oh, what are you worried about, Parky? There's a great big fire behind us anyway. And so, you know, that was the kind of the way he was. But what I really respected and why people, I think, still like him is when I finally mustered up the courage and I tried to put it in a bit of a funny way and I said, listen, Bob, um, you've already had your career, but mine's just starting. I'm kind of feeling a bit nervous here. <laughs> And he goes, oh, oh, yeah, good one. He actually brought it up. Well, he brought it back up to a nice, safe altitude, which was really, really, you know, good. Whereas I'll find with other people, let's say they can remain nameless as well, but in a Blackhawk, and as people who know me, well, they'll know I was Hueys, but some of them only know me as Blackhawk. I flew Hueys for five years, went to America, was supposed to fly Hueys over there, but they all got grounded, ended up on Blackhawks, flew Blackhawks over there for nearly two years, even, you know, instructing over there got back here and the Australian Army didn't really know what to do with me and the QFI Mafia, I said, I kind of uh, hinted at before, decided that I must go to Townsville for a year uh, before they'd let me on a, on a Blackhawk and I had to do the whole Blackhawk course again because apparently the Americans who made the Blackhawk really didn't know how to fly it or instruct people on it, so I had to do it again. But in the early days, you know, got flying with one of the guys up there who was well-known QFI and, you know, I, I respected the guy and all that kind of thing, but right from the word go, just you know, really riding me. And, and again, maybe I needed that. Maybe I needed to be stretched a little bit, but I've never, ever seen a student do their best when you're just being pressured. You know, you're being, you know, not, not so much yelled at, but you're definitely being criticised over and over and over again. And, you know, I've flown enough now to know even the best people 
you put them under pressure and start criticising them, and pretty soon, guess what? They start doing, making more and more mistakes, and all of a sudden, they take a good pilot and turn them into a bad pilot, yeah. and that was all driven by ego. And in the end, we landed in some dark hole somewhere, Cape Cleveland. It was quite funny, actually, in a way, because I just turned to the pilot and I said, look, I think I've had enough of this. He goes, oh, what do you mean? This has never happened before. I said, look, I'm just from the word go, you've been riding me. You're not going to get the best out of me doing that. And he goes, oh, well, do you want to go back? And I said, yeah, let's go back. He goes, oh, hang on a minute. And we talked it out. And then one of the loadmasters in the back, he must have been prepared for occasions like this because he had all these red snakes that he later told me he used to <laughs> diffuse the situation between pilots. So these uh, red snakes get handed forward and, you know, from then on it was sort of always forgiven and, you know, it wasn't my best flight. I know it wasn't my best flight, but at the same time, it just would have been a lot more positive a learning experience if it had been uh, done in a positive way, not with the ego. And later on I had to go and do a, it. wasn't a retest. It didn't fail me as such, but went out and had to do the retest, did it with another QFI and just completely different environment, completely different spirit to the whole thing and, and I know I did a lot better because of that. But, you know, ego, yeah, ego is a powerful thing. No worries. So, yeah, I guess to wrap that up is, yeah, just watch out for that complacency and, yeah, sometimes you just have to swallow the ego for to get the, you know, the job done as a team because uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of egos. Uh, I'm just looking yeah. at the uh, the time there. Let's let's take one more, which is, is cover and move and teamwork, and then we might wrap up and, and yeah. maybe, maybe come back another time and, and pick up the rest of them. But yeah, so the next next point I've got here is uh, the Jocko talks about is cover and move. You know, again, mm. straight out of of military and, and small teams and and uh, rifles, and, you know, uh, sections and things like that. In terms of you know, you'll normally have a pair of you and, and one person will be shooting uh, and laying down cover uh, while the next person's up mm. and running. And then you step that up and you have your fire team. So you'll have, you know, a group of, you know, a group of four or five people uh, providing cover for the next group. And again, you might have one section providing cover as the, the other section moves and platoons and you basically keep stepping up until you get to like, you know, divisions and you're going to have different brigades moving at one time while others providing cover and you've got obviously artillery and air support. So that's kind of like the, the military thing he's looking at here and cover and move. But in terms of a, a business yeah. scenario or for us, it comes back to teamwork. You know, you always you want to be always having that sort of cover and, and, and backing each other up. Uh, so especially yeah. you know, whether it's a, a crew ops within an aircraft or it's crew ops within a company, so your maintainers trying to you know cover and, and move for your pilots, so you're looking after each other. Uh, but yeah, that idea of basically mm. sharing information and none of us can really get a helicopter job done by ourselves. There's always those other people involved, so you've always got to be covering each other and, and helping each other do their job. Uh, so it's kind of the, the guts of his his ideas there. And so again, Barky, I'm not sure if you want to pull your bits from that i guess i just probably call this mateship mick you know looking after each other and i don't mean that you have to actually even be friends with someone or be able to have a beer with someone but i try to put it this way is to go right now in in peacetime environment whether you're flying ems or you know you're going to go and train students again tomorrow or whatever our very vicious and real enemy is an accident and if you've been in the military everyone has either lost friends or knows of someone who's lost friends and when you go to that accident site and you see the machine that was once this amazing feat of engineering and it's a crumpled mess and there might be blood or there's people that have either died or been badly injured, you quickly, again, you know, what we talked about for near horizon, far horizon, you suddenly realise what's important. And even if there's people that you don't like, nobody wishes an accident onto even their probably worst enemy. So when it comes to this, 
you know, how, how can we have each other's back? How can we exhibit mateship as pilots, as crewmen, as medical staff in my particular context? I think one of the big ways is to be able to speak up and to be able to say, hey, I think we have gone too far or we're about to go too far. I'll give an example of that in the EMS world, the emergency service world, where many times I've had uh, paramedics who will come to me and, you know, it's a bit of a dicey mission. The weather's very, very marginal. You can probably do it, but it's going to be difficult. There's going to be a lot of refuel. There's going to hold a lot of alternates and it's going to be fairly complex. And they'll come to me and they'll say, you know what? This is not life or death. We don't have to go tonight because they're very careful in the medevac world to not tell you the state of the patient, um, not not in any detail anyway. And so for them to say that, I think is really, I guess in a way, you know, they're covering their own backside, but at the same time to have the freedom and the honesty to say that to me is mateship or even to be able to say, you know, look, I've spoken to some of the, you know, some of the personalities that we all know and some of them have not even been aware that they, you know, going back to the ego one, that they've they've had that effect on people. And when you then have the courage to sit down and say, you know what, there's nothing against you personally, but when I fly with you, this is how you've made me feel. It sounds a bit touchy-feely, but it's actually real. This is how you've made me feel. This is why I think I'm performing this way, and I'm actually asking for an instructor change. And, you know, this particular individual I was talking to, they were really surprised and shocked. No one had ever sat down with them. And yet in the crew room, everybody was talking about this guy, you know. And to me, that's another sign of mateship if you're willing to have that courageous conversation with someone that you probably wouldn't even have a beer with, but you don't want them to have an accident and they probably don't want you to have an accident. To me, that's how that cover and move or mateship teamwork thing really works out. So, you know, I've heard horror stories, Mick, in the past where crewmen won't speak up in the back because they hate the pilot and as a result, the machines had a you know, a rotor strike or something like that. or And I just think, wow, that to get to that point where you'd much rather have someone, and again, I don't know if that was fully accurate, but I know that there's certainly been situations, maybe not to that extreme, and to get to that point where you're just happy to let that happen or you're so angry at someone that, you know, you're almost willing willing them to have a an accident. I just think, wow, what have we got to there? Well, what's going on in our heads? That's not cover and move. That's not mateship at all. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, because so, yeah. the strategic mission or what you're actually trying to achieve, like that is is so far against the, uh, you know, what the outcome that you're trying to get in that case, if it's actually going to yeah. Yeah, go that close. But, yeah, I think you've got the guts of it there is, yeah, looking after each other and teamwork and I guess the tribalism as well. So, you know, whether it's between squadrons or between engineering and pilots or between the, you know, the, the admin or the pay staff or whoever the, the bean counters are in the frontline uh, staff down in the workshop. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's trying to break down, you know, the silos so that you are, you know, within a company or organisation working towards the goal and you are covering each other. Uh, rather than it sort of being, mm. you know, adversarial inside an organisation and people are working against each other when you're trying to actually pull in the same direction at the end of the day. Conflict is a really, I think it's a real, uh, it's almost like an accident-producing condition. You know, it's almost like a, it can be, but it's not handled probably because what happens is it gets people's minds off what's happening in the aircraft. It gets people's minds off what's happening within I guess, the strategic safety culture of the company and all of a sudden, back to near horizons, oh, fire out. And he said, she said, this person said this about me. Now I need to justify that. Now I need to punch this email out. Now I need, you know what I mean? It's just sucking up emotional energy. And, and I think 
again, that cover and move thing, that teamwork mateship. It's like, okay, let's have this courageous conversation. Let's talk this out. Let's remember what we're here for and let's just try and, you know, not talk behind each other's back. Let's go straight to that person and talk through it with them um, so that we can have a healthy relationship. Because I'm just a firm believer, Mick, that safe relationships mean safe flying operations. And, and often we, I think we probably neglect that side of the house. All right, so the points that we won't cover tonight, uh, essentially just skipping forward here uh, and again, because there's so much good stuff we can pull out of each of these, but uh, the, the highlights from the, from the book are, you know, keep it simple, uh, prioritise and execute, which there's just some good gear in there. Uh, decentralised command, which sounds like a, you know, a very military thing, but again, as soon as you throw it back into an organisation and give it context, there's some good gear there for aviation. And sustaining victory, which mm-hmm. I think is a, a great name. We talk about risk management, but that idea of, of sustaining victory, you know, it's just a... Uh, you know, a, a great mm. phrase. I love that, and, and a couple other yeah. bits and pieces. And obviously, we'll we'll probably finish with discipline equals freedom, which is his uh, definitely a, a big mindset that he that he pushes. Parky, yeah. well, I guess to to leave people with something to to go and check out uh, in the meantime, do you want to just give some quick details on the on the, on the podcast that you've got with the uh, the other chaps there in Tormer um, and how folks can uh, track it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, thanks, mate, as well, because I know you plugged it for me for a few times. So, yeah, the podcast started a couple of years ago and, again, probably relates to that idea of the spirit of the core or the spirit of flight safety. And so it was sort of the little blurb that I've got is, you know, from the first spark of aviation curiosity to first flight to going solo to a professional career, Sam, our baby boomer, Parky, that's me, our Gen Xer, and Luke, our Gen Y, pursued a spirit of flight in a series of informal conversations, which you get to listen in on. And basically the idea was we found out that Luke, who's the Gen Y, Sam and myself were exactly 22 years apart, which is roughly a generation starting flying training. So the idea was every time Luke went through a bit of a milestone with his flying career, we would all get together and talk about our particular milestone. So, you know, when he first went solo, first circuits, all that kind of stuff, We'd all talk about ours, but obviously for Sam, he was in the early 70s, I was the early 90s, and Luke was just last year or the year before. So anyway, it's about 12 episodes on there right up to where Luke gets his uh, restricted pilot's licence, which was really cool. This is kind of good just to reminisce and, you know, for anyone that has, uh, well, it's good for both older pilots and new pilots or up-and-coming pilots to have a listen to. We talk through a whole bunch of different things, and Sam, as you know, has got a whole bunch of experience in fixed wing and also rotary wing, police, you know, EMS and everything really. Military really well respected. Matter of fact, we just took him out for his 70th birthday yesterday, which was really fun. So, but at the moment, the podcast is a little bit on hold because Luke's put his flying training on hold. That's a bit of a spoiler actually, but uh, so I am looking for another recruit who's sort of at RPL stage. Moving, I may have found one, uh, moving on to cadetship with Qantas and that kind of thing. So I want to keep talking through. Or it might actually be a new pilot who's actually going to fly uh, in Timor with MAF, which is the Missionary Aviation yeah. Fellowship over there. That's pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Uh, anyway, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, so, you better, yeah, better mention the name. It. So it's, it's the Cancel Summit. Oh, sorry. Podcast. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it's the Cancel SAR Watch podcast. So if you're not a pilot, then you probably don't understand necessarily what the SAR stands for search and rescue. And then SAR Watch is your search and rescue watch, which is pretty much on every flight. At the end of a flight, you would say to the air traffic controller or flight service, can, you know, landed Toowoomba, cancel SAR Watch, which means it landed safely. So it's a bit of a play on that, to the idea of, okay, what is it that gets us 
to a safe landing, you know, what are all the things, the aviation values, skills, knowledge, you know, the aviation attitudes that get you there. But it's it's just cancel SAR watch, all one word, so cancel, then SAR and then watch.com. Um, and you'll see there's also a link there to all the articles I write for Flight Safety, which I really enjoy and get a big kick out of because I get to kind of expand my horizons out to the big jet world as well and research there and it's good going through an editorial process and all that. And they do a really good job. They've won a few awards and stuff as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say, next time we catch up, we'll also basically plug and talk through the, the big idea you've got about basically re-rolling the Australian Blackhawks when they get retired. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there that I want to share too. But I, I think yeah. unless you you want to sum anything up or throw anything else in, we might uh, wrap up for, for this one and uh, we'll get you back on in the yeah, yeah. near future. Yeah, no, that's good, mate. I'm happy with that. And thanks. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show. That was Adrian Park helping me tease out some of the ideas from the book Extreme Ownership. About a week after recording with Parky, I actually went to a, a CASA organised workshop afternoon here for flight instructors at Archfield in, in Brisbane, where we went through a number of different accident case studies. The focus here in the day was, was really covering uh, flight reviews and getting instructors to think about you know, what we're spending our time on with pilots when the, they come in and, and sit with us and we go through a, a flight review with them. And it turns out that Aircraft handling errors are just not really that heavily represented in many of the accidents that are, are coming through. Whereas I guess on the instructor side, on the flight side, often that's where we spend a lot of our focus is on that on the handling side. And again, I think this is where conversations like the one you've just listened to today and others that pull in uh, leadership and decision-making ideas and skills into an aviation context can be a, a big help. In terms of the, the top four areas of concern for the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, and this is just targeted at general aviation. Number one was flying lower than necessary. Two, experiencing reduced visibility. Three was fuel system management. And four was recognising the implications, or sorry, not recognising the implications of something going wrong. Zooming out a little bit in terms of the, the white aviation industry, the ATSB's risk concerns there were, were drones, data input errors, fatigue, and then separation in non-controlled airspace. If you're interested in the book or Jocko's podcast, I've got links up on the blog post for this episode at rotarywingshow.com. I think you know Jocko's got some really good uh, mindset and some approaches there that can help a lot of people. And again, you know whether you go and search it after listening to this podcast or if you're already familiar with uh, with some of his gear, and you know I'd love to get your feedback on terms of how you sort of think from your side how you can apply it to aviation you know, the different bits and pieces you've picked up or a different story that you've had that you can use to, to relate. So definitely send those in uh, through to me. On a personal side, in terms of uh, some of the things he goes along with, I haven't got to the point where I'm, I'm doing the 4 a.m. starts and, and the routines, but I have taken up jiu-jitsu, so I've been doing that for the last uh, 16 months after listening to Jocko. And my kids definitely love the audio version. He's got uh, two books out called the uh, the Warrior Kid Books. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff in there. It's just great, you know. It's obviously geared at kids, but it's almost like The Simpsons, where there's a you know a different uh, adult message that, that goes along with it too. So it's uh, it's great for the kids to listen, and then I'm sitting there listening and basically almost taking notes at the same time. In the show notes again for this episode, you'll find the links to uh, Parky's podcast, the Cancel Sarwatch podcast, and his Human Factors Training and Consultancy Company. And look, I can strongly vouch that if you need to group get a a group CRM training. Uh, delivered, then you know he would make that a, a very, very interesting day. 
There are some photos of Eric Parkey if you want to see what he looks like, uh, standing next to a couple of Hueys in Bougainville, some Blackhawks in the US when he was there, and in East Timor during the deployment, and a shot next to a Bell 412 rescue machine uh, that he's flown since as well. Just days ago here, the New South Wales Fire Service in Australia announced that they're getting two Blackhawks transferred from the Australian Army that they're going to be using to transport firefighters around on bushfires. And this could be possibly good news for another project that Parkey's working on called Oswalks. And we alluded to the end of the episode there, and again, I think it deserves uh, its own chat at some stage. Uh, we'll get Parkey back on. But the, the idea there, I guess, the, the, you know, the big idea that he's got is that the Australian Army will be retiring our Blackhawk fleet in the next couple of years. And instead of seeing completely flyable and useful aircraft being gutted and, and turned into to gate guards and, and sitting around at military bases, Adrian's shopping around the idea that a number of the Blackhawks be basically kept aside and used as a humanitarian and emergency uh, relief fleet in the Pacific and Southeast Asian region and basically funding that with a small diversion of current aid funds that Australia sends out. So rather than basically doing you know, cash handouts, one of the way that the aid works is some of that funds can be diverted into running a dedicated uh, rescue fleet that would go in after humanitarian and uh, environmental disasters. That's uh, something to, to keep an eye out on. World Helicopter Day in 2018 is on track to be a lot of fun again in August. There are currently 15 events listed on, on the website in terms of locations around the world. You can check those out and add your own events at worldhelicopterday.com. I can't think enough the the small team of folks supporting the show on Patreon for helping to offset the bandwidth costs when you download the episodes each time. If you get something from the interviews and want to keep seeing more of these coming through, then please consider visiting rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Any support is very much appreciated, so thank you. Next time, we'll be back with an episode about helicopter operations during the Falklands War. If you want to dive into the background of that uh, before hearing one of the pilots that was there uh, talk about it from his first-hand experiences and, and obviously talking to the other aircraft, the, the author of the book and the gentleman you'll be hearing is Harry Benson, and the book is called Scram, the gripping first-hand account of the helicopter war in the Falklands. Again, that was Harry Benson, if you're trying to find that book. So great read, and I think it'd be really interesting having read that and then hearing Harry talk about uh, the experiences and some of the, the stories in the book when that comes through on the next episode. Until then, you can drop me a line at feedback at rotarywingshow.com about anything extreme ownership and as it relates to aviation, or jump in and be part of the conversation in the blog post comments. Catch you in the next one.